This morning's scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Please follow along in your own Bibles or as the text is presented on the screens above. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not envy. It is not boast. It is not proud. It is not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see you face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I feel like I've done this enough times that you know what I'm going to ask you to do. In Scripture, uh, we see that the extension of hands, the laying on of hands is a way of extending blessing. And in this moment, I would love to pray for you, and I would ask that you would pray for me, uh, that the words that are spoken here um, would be God's words and not mine. So please, let's pray. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for uh, this moment and this space and this opportunity that we have to gather around your word. God, I pray for every heart and for every ear. Lord, would you speak? Would you allow us to hear your voice above all others? God, meet people where they are. Help them to feel your love today. God, I offer myself to you. Take these mere words and let them go forth. And by your grace and the power of your spirit, God, may they bring fruit in the change that you so long for us to see. In all that is done, may you be glorified for you alone are worthy of all honor, praise, and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is JD. I'm one of the pastors here at Pine Lake Covenant Church, and I'm so excited to be worshiping with all of you this morning. And if you are new, I'm especially excited to be worshiping with you. And that's mostly because you're new, and I'm glad you're here. Uh, We are a church... um, of all ages, all growing all the time. We believe that it's okay to not be okay, and we pursue truth even with our doubts. And we strive to keep the main thing, Christ, uh, the main thing in all that we do. We love God, we love people, we grow disciples, and we love to serve. And I hope that if Pine Lake is not your home church, this is a place that you can one day call your spiritual home. A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity uh, to spend some time with some middle schoolers at Campbell Farm. And one of the things that I love about middle schoolers is their curiosity and their questioning um, heart. 
I have a daughter who's just eight months old. And sometimes I imagine, what will it at least be like when she's in elementary school? What will she be like when she's in middle school? What will she be like when she's in high school? What will she be like when she's in college, <laughs> right? Uh, and my fears and anxiety increases as I go through all these different phases. But let's say she's a middle schooler and she's curious. Um, if Elise were to come to me and ask the question, Daddy, what matters most? I feel like there are certain things that I could talk about and kind of offer some expertise on. For instance, if she came to me and said, uh, Daddy, in Taekwondo, in martial arts, what matters most? I would say, well, honey, it's the kicks. I did that for most of my life, and Taekwondo differs because it specializes on kicks. Uh, if she came to me and said, in the game of chess, what matters most? I would say, well, you have the pieces, and you have the opening, and the mid-game, and the in-game, but, but what matters most in chess is actually positional advantage. Because whether you have that in the beginning or at the end or somewhere in the middle, you can gain it or lose it. But, but positional advantage is really what wins the game. And so I would say that matters most. If she were to come to me and say, Dad, I know you love to do improv. In improv, what matters most? Is it uh, being funny? Is it being spontaneous? Is it just knowing how to like, use your body for physicality? What matters most? Well, I would say, honey, in improv, what matters most is listening. You can't respond to people if you don't really listen to them. Now, if my daughter were to come to me and ask the question, in our Christian lives, in Christian living, Daddy, what matters most? The answer I would give her is love. Love matters most of all in our Christian lives. Today, we're wrapping up a series uh, that we've been in for the past 11 weeks. It's a series called Hurt by Church, and we've been looking at the ways that people in the church, including ourselves, can be and have been hurt by church. And we've been doing this by specifically studying the first century church in Corinth that was founded by Paul, one of Christianity's earliest and greatest missionaries. And, and we've talked about being hurt in a lot of different ways, back then and in present day. And this morning, we're capping the series by talking about... Uh, this sermon, which I am titling, Hurt by No Love. Now, before we jump in, I would like to give two disclaimers, okay? I find it incredibly challenging to stand before you this morning and preach this sermon for two reasons. One, I am not an expert on love. On my best days, I think JD is a pretty decent guy. Yes, I am talking about myself in the third person. I think he's nice, I think he's kind of funny, I think he's charming, I think he works hard and cares about people. But on other days, I can be and am a broken, selfish, prideful human being. And I miss the mark of love that this chapter outlines all the time in my life. Even just this last week, I had a, cup, I had a conversation with, with two people. And instead of showing them love and kindness, I showed pride and disrespect. Instead of showing them this quality that Paul is talking about, I was more concerned about being right. It's not something I'm proud of. It's something that I failed at. And it's something I know that I'm going to have to ask for their forgiveness for. So my first disclaimer is that I'm not speaking up here as someone who's mastered this. It's actually the complete opposite. I'm speaking as someone who is still learning from Christ and my mistakes. 
The second disclaimer I want to give to you is this. How can I share any novel insight on one of the most famous passages in all of human literature? I don't believe I can. The truth is, many of you could preach this passage better than I can. You know more about love than I do. Some of you have been married longer than I've lived. Some of you have endured great pain and suffering and overcame that through showing love and forgiveness and kindness. And I'm not trying to bring something new. I'm only trying to possibly, uh, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to stir up something that is old and common and hopefully not forgotten. So with that said, let's just jump in. Now this is one of the most iconic passages in all of Scripture. I'm sure that many of you can recite it from memory. I want to posit to you this morning that I also believe it may be one of the most misunderstood passages as well. You see, some people believe that this passage is about romantic love. I mean, this passage is one of the most used passages in the world when it comes to wedding ceremonies. The language is so poetic and so beautiful, and we see pictures like this, and we think, oh, love, when I'm with you, I feel perfect. Oh. He has a guitar. I imagine myself doing that. One can assume, right, that because it's connected to romantic love and weddings, that, that maybe this is just about romantic love. However, there's no indication of this anywhere in this passage. There's no mention of marriage. There's no mention of a couple or anything romantic. And if it was just about romantic love, well, what about single people? It's people who are single, choose not to be married, or those uh, maybe who've been widowed, or those who, who feel called to celibacy. What, what does this mean for them? Does that mean that 1 Corinthians 13 can't apply to them, that they can't experience it somehow? This is a passage about love, but it's not just specific romantic love. Now, other people will say, well, it's not romantic love, but this passage is surely about God's love. The word that Paul uses certainly describes how God loves us. You know, we read the word love, but more specifically in the original language, Paul uses the Greek word agape, which some believe is a word that represents God's love for us. Now, it is true that the ancient Greeks used four words to denote love. The first one was agape, which is God's love for us. The second one was phileo, which is a friendship or brotherly love, kind of like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Storie, which is uh, love in a family between like a parent and child. And eros, which is passionate love, by which we get the word erotic. However, in the New Testament, the word eros never shows up. Completely non-existent. The word storge, which is supposed to represent family love, shows up just once in Romans, and it's used to describe brotherly love instead of the word phileo. That word phileo does exist in the New Testament. It shows up 25 times, but it's used to describe the love that God has for us and not brotherly love that we have for each other. And the word agape is used the most at 116 times, but it's used to describe both divine and human love. Okay, J.D., what is the point of all this Greek nonsense? It means that there is no consistent pattern for the use of the four words of love in the Bible. So therefore, just because agape is used does not necessarily mean that this is just about God's love for us. If this was only about God's love for us, it means that, that, that we have an out, right? Because God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And if this is God's love for us, we definitely can't live it out. And oh, thank God, because we don't have to. I mean, it's impossible to love this way. Only if it were that easy. 
It's not. This passage is about love, and the scope of here is, is, is not just limited to romantic or God's love. It, it does include both, because love is a part of both, but the scope is actually much larger. Uh, this passage is about something greater than romance or divine love, and therefore has a broader reach. When I was in seminary, um, I had a professor, his name was Dr. Champa, who told us that context is king, meaning that the context of the words, where they're located, helps to determine the meaning a lot more than just the words themselves. Now, let me illustrate this. I'm a new parent, okay? I've been a parent for eight months, and what I've learned about parenting is how much I don't know about everything. And every time I think I've mastered something, Sarah and I are like, oh my gosh, she's doing something different. She doesn't like that anymore. Ah, it's the most humbling thing I've ever experienced. And I'm only eight months in. But let's say that I meet a couple, and they're going to have a kid, or they're interested in having children. And let's say that I want to give them 10 ways to show your little one some love. So here are my 10 ways. One, talk to your little one. Two, give lots of hugs. Three, go on long walks. Four, lots of brushing. Five, play together. Six, give back rubs or scratches. Seven, take trips to the park. Eight, give treats. Nine, give and enjoy bath time. And 10, show lots and lots of love. Now, at first glance, this might seem like good advice, some of which might be a little weird. But what if I told you that these were actually the 10 ways to show your puppy you rub them from BarkPost.com? You would not take this advice to apply to your children, right? One person said maybe. <laughs> Context changes things. It helps us to understand uh, the meaning behind the words themselves. And, and it's the same when we understand scripture. So in order to understand if, what this passage is really all about, we have to figure out the context that it's in. The passage actually starts in the last sentence in chapter 12. Right? Chapter 12, last week, we heard about Christian community and embracing each other and valuing each other and loving each other, hurting and celebrating with each other. And at the end, Paul says this sentence. He says, and yet, I will show you the most excellent way. See, 1 Corinthians 13 is Paul's prescription on how the church is to live and function as the church. It's the prescription for how you and I are supposed to treat each other. Not romantically, not divine between God, but between us. And Paul starts the passage with these three interesting statements. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now what is Paul trying to say? The Corinthians were obsessed with knowledge spirituality, and religious acts. These were the things that they based their arrogance and pride on. And Paul is saying, you can have all of that, but if you don't have love, it's meaningless. Imagine the first scenario. Let's say that there is a person, okay, who can speak every language on earth. They're literally like a human Google translator. This person could connect and be uh, in relationship with anyone across the planet. They could probably disarm North Korea. They could probably bring world peace, right? Who knows what this person could do? And maybe this person 
doesn't just speak all the languages on earth, but, but one day angelic beings, right, whether they're real angels or aliens from the sky, show up. And all of a sudden, this person starts speaking alien, right? Something different from normal. If this person had this ability but didn't have love, this individual would just be someone who is making a lot of noise. The second scenario is a person who has prophecy, prophetic gifts. Maybe their uh, ability to see into the future. Maybe they can unlock the mysteries of the universe, you know, smarter than Stephen Hawking, or, or, or that maybe there's someone who stores all knowledge more than all the museums in the world. Smithsonian, Louvre. But if that person has no love, Paul is saying that person is nothing. The third scenario, a person who gives away all they have to the poor, everything, maybe even their own body or even their own life for a cause. If that person does that, but they don't have love, that person gains nothing. Paul is saying that in the Christian life, Love matters most. It's more important than anything we do. It's more important than all the knowledge that we can have about the Bible or the histories of the world. It's more important than, than all of the different spiritual gifts and the things we experience. It's more important than all our greatest acts of service. You can do all of that but if you don't have love, it's meaningless. He then continues to describe what love is. And you would think, right, if you're going to describe love, if let's say it's a math equation, love equals something, you have a choice of using noun, adjective, or verb. Most people would probably think he's going to use a noun. Love equals this. But Paul... I don't know, maybe he was being imaginative or he just couldn't stop and created one of the greatest rambling sentences all of history. He uses 15 verbs to describe love. Hear this again. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Why does Paul use verbs? Simon Sinek, an author and TED speaker, says this in his book, Start With Why. It might set some light into this. He's talking about organizations and values, but, but hear what he says. For values or guiding principles to be truly effective, they have to be verbs. It's not just integrity. It's always do the right thing. It's not just innovation. It's look at the problem from a different angle. Articulating our values as verbs gives us a clear idea. We have a clear idea of how to act in any situation. And there's the word, how to act. See, love is not a noun because it's not something that you can just keep or have for yourself. Love is a verb because it's something that we do. We do that as an extension of who we are. Our, our doing comes out of our being. And so Paul puts them all in verbs, 15 of them. 
Now, when I face this list and I hear this list, I don't know how you feel. I feel horrible. Because I fail dramatically at this. I'm not patient. I'm not kind. I'm definitely easily angered. I'm definitely someone who doesn't love this way. If I'm honest with myself, I love selectively. It's so weird that as a pastor I'm telling you this, right? But I, I will go, oh, I really like this person. They're cool. We jive. Oh, him, not so much. Her, uh, okay. I'm going to go back over here. Lord be with them. <laughs> I love selectively. I love selfishly. My wife will say, hey, honey. It's like three in the morning, right? And Lisa's up again. And she's like, can you like go get some water? And I'm like, uh, pretend like you don't hear her, pretend like you don't hear her, pretend like you don't hear her. So selfish. I love passively. Instead of being proactive and loving first, I will be like, nope, not doing it. I'm not doing it. Mm-mm. Nope, they're going to have to apologize first. I'm right and I'm going to be right. I'm not doing it. No way. Forget being proactive. Oh, I know God was proactive, but no, that's different. That's different. I'm not God. Agape. That's how I I fail dramatically when I look at this list. And look, if we're all honest, we all do. Look at our world. Our world is so broken, so full of sin, people hurting each other all the time. This is why the words in that famous song by Dionne Warwick is so true. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing, there's just too little love. See, what's incredibly sad is that you can even say that that's true of the church. The church in Corinth, right, we've witnessed this over 11 weeks, they hurt each other by their arrogance, by their immaturity, by their hypocrisy, by their broken sexuality by their unhealthy leadership, their judgmentalism, their views on freedom, views on gender wars, their use of communion, and even community. We don't love well at all. Some people might think, well, I know love. I don't do the opposite, which is hate. Yeah, nearly everyone in this room, I don't think there's anyone in here who genuinely hates. It's just that we love poorly. We see it in the world, we see it in the church, we see it in our own lives, I see it in my life. So so what do we do? How can we love each other this way? And in closing, I want to give you the key. Some people say that there's a statement that hurt people hurt people. What that means is that if you're someone who has experienced pain, you're going to just hurt people for no reason. It could have been some trauma or some sin or some guilt and you're hurt and all of a sudden you just lash out at people. Hurt people hurt people. I think that's true. I've seen it in my life. I've seen it in the life of others. But I want to offer to you this morning that if that's true, I believe that loved people love people. People who are loved in a genuine and real, authentic way, in a way in which they experience healing, will naturally love people. See, here's the mystery of the Bible. If you want to be more loving, it doesn't come from yourself. 
It doesn't come from trying harder or, or trying to be more religious or trying to be more moralistic. It doesn't come from increasing your willpower. It comes from allowing yourself to be loved. Do you know how backward that is? J.D., are you telling me that if I want to love more that I have to be loved more? Yes. If you want to be better at loving others, you have to be better at being loved. We look in the Bible, 39 books in the Old Testament. Right? God is wanting to show love to his people. He gives them the law. You guys know this doesn't work. The law becomes oppressive. It becomes about right and wrong. People start hating each other because of the law, oppressing people. And there's a prophecy that shows up in the book of Ezekiel where God says, I'm going to take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. A heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, one that's real. And God did this by sending his son Jesus into this very broken world. He lived for 33 years, a perfect life. He went to the cross and he died on our behalf. He took our sins and our shame. And before we were friends of God, before we even knew him, he loved and died for us. And it's because of that sacrifice that we can experience the love of Christ, the grace of Christ. When that happens, it transforms our hearts. We become his image bearers and we love as we've been loved. See, this is why Paul can say that love never fails because love has an eternal quality. Prophecies might cease and spiritual gifts might end. But what is held as knowledge, even when you die or when you come into deeper knowledge, it, it falls apart. But love, he says, never fails. Now, now, here's the thing. I know about Jesus. You know about Jesus. We all know this. We've heard this before. And here's the million-dollar question. And why am I so horrible at loving? Why are we? In our families, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our communities. There are plenty of examples where the church has failed to be a loving place. One of Gandhi's most famous quotes, right? I love your Jesus, but I can't stand your Christians. How sad. That somehow we have failed to be recipients of such an incredible love. How sad that I say I know the love of Christ, but I can't give it to other people. This morning, the key to embracing this love and living in the reality of this love is not in ourselves. It's in the love and grace of Jesus Christ. We're going to be coming to the table and responding. And I just want you to ponder for a second. Where are you this morning? Maybe you're someone who's been hurt. We've been going through this series and we've been talking about hurt by church. Maybe there's hurt in your heart. Maybe it's related to church. Maybe it's related to family. Maybe it's related to sin or the world. Hurt people hurt people. God wants to redeem that hurt and heal that hurt. And, and if that is healed and, and loved people, you'll love people. Or maybe you're someone that God is calling you to love someone else. Maybe he's saying, I want you to love in a more intentional way that speaks of the grace that you've received. As we approach this table this morning, may we all remember the love that Christ has given to us May we allow ourselves to be loved so that we can in turn love each other and love this world that so 
desperately is longing for something else. How sad is it if we can't be a community that is marked by a love that is greater than what is out there? I'm going to pray and open a time of silence. In that moment, I just invite you to ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart. I'll pray for us and then we'll go into communion. Father, we thank you for this moment. I pray, Holy Spirit, that in this silence you would reveal to us the areas in which you want us to grow, the areas in which you want us to be loved or to love. And so we enter into silence now. Father, your love for us is so intense. Jesus, your grace is so overwhelming. Spirit, your peace, so sweet. As we come to this table, I pray that you would reveal to people how loved they are. In spite of their failures, in spite of their sins, in spite of the damage done to them, help them to let down the walls and receive the love and grace of Christ. And for those who are in a good place, help them to love and give what they have received to others. May there be death and resurrection at the table this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.